This is Payments Innovation. We take you deep into the DNA of digital finance with some of the most respected voices in the industry. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of Payments Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, my name is Ina, and today I'm joined by Ruben Lim, our Chief Operating Officer at the Singapore Fintech Association. Hello, Ruben. Hello, everyone. Very nice to have you here today. And um, in today's episode, we're talking about the grand reopening of China. What does China's reopening mean for the business world? And it could really end up being the most significant economy event of 2023. However, the potential consequences might be far from clear. And today's China is very different from one that closed its doors three years ago. So we're looking at what it might mean for businesses in APEC as well as around the world. Now, Ruben has been with Singapore Fintech Association for some time. You've um, been in and out of China. You've been dealing with the Chinese markets. I'm sure you've been um, an expert at it as well. So we have you here today. Why not take um, a few moments to introduce yourself, share with us your experiences with China thus far. What have you seen? Right. Hi, everyone. Um, good thanks for, thank you. Thank you. Big thanks to Currency Club for having me here today. Really appreciate that. Um, my career kind of span across seven different jobs, seven different industry. So I guess what I'm going to share next is probably an appreciation of um, what's accumulated over and not just only limited to FinTech. My perception of China relatively different. But I do have to call out that um, everyone perceives China differently. China is like a huge mammoth. Uh, some sees the tail, some sees the trunk, some sees the horns. Everyone do, does have different opinions. But um, as far as I'm going to share, we'll try to validate that with my personal experiences. Perfect, perfect. And my first question to you, how many hot pots have you had when you last go into China? <laughs> Wow, so less of hot pot. I think what I have is a lot more of the street delicacy, which I have to admit, that actually over the past three years, a lot of these things have gone. Um, China, uh, I, I, know, I know that was meant to be a casual question, but I thought it kind of brought in something very serious uh, because to understand China, one has to understand politics. Uh, and if you do not understand the pol, or at least have a simple understanding of the politics, then you will not be able to uh, appreciate what is going on in China, especially with different policies, especially with different business reactions and the way uh, they carry out and conduct themselves. Uh, so even a simple question like food, one would actually link back a lot to back to the entertainment days. You know, so those were the days where they splash out all the alcohol, they'll make sure that you have a good time, um, bribery, a lot of those things have cleaned up for over the past 10, 15, 20 years. So China has been overhauled, it's a brand new animal now. And in fact, China is actually pretty much, if you go to the top tier cities, it's a first world city. It's actually as cosmopolitan as it is, and the quality of the products and the services are actually pretty top notch at this moment. No, absolutely. Um, I've recently just been to China a couple months ago. And um, what you're seeing is pretty much what we see in Singapore as well. Clearly super advanced, technology super advanced, WeChat, Alipay, these are the super embedded forms of digital or finance payments as well. So what do you think exactly happened in the last year? What we're seeing today with the reopening, do you think these were overhauled in the last three years or they have always been this advanced and, and with the closing in the last three years, what do you think is the impact on, say, businesses or maybe more specifically 
fintechs or around the cross-border kind of industry? So that's a very, very big question there. So let me try to dissect that into specific segments. So let's maybe look at from the B2B and then of course the B2C angle. In terms of technology, we heard many times that the leapfrog syndrome, you know, so their economy, they kind of leapfrog uh, and China did exactly that when we were still using cash and credit card, that kind of literally leapfrog. And leapfrogging, it's really a combination of factors. Uh, it's one about having the technology availability and advancement um, because sometimes some of the technology are ahead of itself sometimes when the opportunities are there but the technology is not ready and at the same time also opportunity because the circumstances where the banking system at the point of time wasn't very mature there was quite a high number of unbanked uh, there was high mobile phone penetration internet took off so there's really no one reason but i think what makes this take off a lot more successful is that there were not many options at the point of time as well to my Western listeners out there, in case you have that perception, oh, you know, because China banned us. Uh, no, China did not ban anybody. But they do lay down very strict data requirement control, etc., which then as a result of their business principles, they feel that it's not suitable for them and, and they make a conscious decision to not to enter. And so as a result, it does give rise to the opportunity to a few uh, smart tech companies like that's on the rise and, and develop what it is you see right now today. I think one thing I want to call out is that uh, in terms of since the question was why have they seen the difference between the past three years, on a B2B perspective, uh, I don't think the difference is that significant because even though there's COVID, uh, but global trade continues. Uh, cargo planes are still flying. Uh, sea freights are still continuing. In fact, during the past three years, we see a rise in sea freight causes. We see a shortage in container uh, and, and you see all the liners making good revenue good profits at that point on time. So there was a huge demand in consumption. On a B2B wise, things are still ongoing, business are still moving. But more importantly, technology has become even more embedded. Three to four years ago, I remember when I was struggling to use multiple apps. But I think the most significant hit me is really one app where other major apps, I, call, I really call them major, even your, your taxi app, your food critic app, uh, recommendation discount apps, even got embedded into the master apps itself. So um, it has just gotten so embedded to the point where it was still a big leap as well. It is. And I think all the other apps out there in, in other parts of the world that's trying to be as embedded as it is, uh, may still have a bit of journey to catch up if, you, if that is your goal standard. Mm, that's that's a very interesting observation. And you mentioned, you know, global trade continues, which is good to see. In fact, the increase in global trade or sea freight, etc. Um, I'd like to ask, given that, how then has, for example, the average Chinese consumer changed? What do they now expect of businesses bringing services or goods to them three, four years ago before China closed its stores. And now with reopening, how have they changed expectations-wise? Chinese buyer market is still very broad, you know, so it's very hard to categorize your consumers, but everyone has a very huge range of uh, purchasing power. But the things they buy is very different. As a general observation, Chinese are still consuming. And in fact, they embrace consumerism. When it comes to B2C businesses, China opens their arms and welcome you in. So if you observe, Singapore at one point in time was actually the biggest foreign investment in, into China. What has changed quite a lot over the past three to four years is that consumers are a lot sharper. They are a lot more severe. There's no longer a price war where people will just buy the cheapest things. People are now looking into quality and they're also smarter about comparison. Omni-channel 
it's a very, very real situation here. Whether I buy online, I buy offline, I go to a retail shop, I start to use the lens and then start to find something online and do a price comparison. Those are becoming very, very real. Uh, one key thing that I observe is that much as how e-commerce have dominated the, the space, there is still a, in a very real need for humans to interact. And thereafter, the streets are still packed. People are still browsing uh, and they are also getting younger because uh, as the technology matures, as the years goes by, the people who adapt and, and adopt and get used to this technology or the applications that's made available to them are just getting stronger by the numbers. So you have to be part of this game in order to, to get used to it. It does sound to me like the China market is actually still very vibrant. People, or rather consumers, are more savvy, they're younger, they expect a little bit more, they're choosy. So what that means actually for businesses is if you want to enter this market and target this piece of the pie, you probably need to be way, way, way more innovative in terms of your services or your solutions. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. And um, again, there's no one size fit all. It all boils down to what are you looking for? What is your service offering? Is it really a product? Is it services? Is it food? Is it uh, education? Um, and because they don't do, they look out for different things. Um, so I'll give you a case in point. Um, let's say in Singapore, uh, what is being looked up to from Chinese perspective is that they appreciate our education or at least they appreciate the methodology. Uh, and bearing in mind that Chinese has a very, very strong education system as well. But yet, to some extent, um, they also appreciate the way Singapore, uh, how we bring it. So when Singapore education brands go into China, they tend to have a better reception. And as Chinese are better traveled, you realize that international brands have better opportunity because then the Chinese audience are a lot more receptive. When people from China has traveled to Singapore, they have this part of the world, they tasted it, and then they bring it back there. So the success of international brands in China is also a testimony of how open up, uh, how to some extent internationalization or Cosmo, um, these local people and these Chinese people have been. In terms of businesses, say today, if I own a business and, and I really want my products or my services to actually be offered in China. Therefore, I need investments as well, right, from China's side. And, and really, as far as I know, being Chinese myself, a lot of this, I think, is dependent on relationships or relations, or in Chinese, we call guanxi, right? What, what are your thoughts around, you know, in today's Chinese market, in today's landscape, what can businesses take note of navigating relationship building with the China market? The ease in doing business has changed so much that right now in China, even without relationship, you can still file for a company. Even without relationship, you can still get some government support. Even without formal, some besties to introduce to somebody, you will still be able to connect with someone. You will still be able to get things done. Again, uh, we keep saying China, but really China is made of so many provinces that one province itself is bigger than a lot of other countries. So in that context, even understanding which province do you want to go into, which city do you want to go into, who do you know in that city, who is your business partner? And I think that is a context where you need a business partner. And I personally do know that a few of the F&B companies that are in Singapore, they are in China, they didn't go in proactively. It's not that they, they, they bear their chest, get ready, their, their ammunition and say, I'm going to conquer China. No, a lot of times because they actually know someone 
who is in China. Uh, and in that context, they, they discuss, they talk it out, they work out the economics and say, hey, you know, I trust that you can do certain things and then you move in. So it's a lot more opportunistic. This is a perfect point, right? I think thanks very much for helping us break down, you know, some of the ideas that perhaps we've been holding so closely to us. It's such a difficult market to crack because of Guanxi, because of relations. But however, what we've seen actually is China has advanced so much, especially across the recent years, right, that they're also welcoming you know, incoming businesses as well. And with that, I actually want to flip the direction a little bit. So we've been seeing or, or talking about um, businesses going in. But what about businesses coming out of China? Right, so even though, and, and maybe this is a little bit more specific to fintechs or, or SMEs, but global funding landscape has been quite volatile over the last year or two, as we've all seen, right? However, the fintech landscape in Southeast Asia has remained rather vibrant. And this includes China as well, actually, not just Southeast Asia. So if we look at the trend of Chinese businesses entering Southeast Asia, what, what do you think is in store for us? in Singapore, in Southeast Asia, or, or in APEC outside of China? What do we need to do? What do businesses need to take note of to jump on this opportunity? What's in it for us? China remains a very big and important market. Um, China is no longer where the way it is 30, 40 years ago. So growth uh, has been limited uh, just this year. Uh, we hear from uh, Xile, the CEO and uh, of JD.com, and we also hear from Daniel Zhang, Alibaba CEO, where they all share similar feedback where their revenue numbers miss expectation. They are all signaling that local market to some extent may not be growing as fast as they envision it to be. Okay, So these are just really some very high level top points about why expanding beyond China becomes necessary. And then what are the opportunities? China to many extent is very similar to Singapore in terms of our political climate. I know we are not communists, but there are some similarities. And I'll give you an example. One Belt, One Road movement is a very good example of how it helps Chinese companies to venture beyond. So as the government sets up opportunities in different countries through construction, through education, through supply chain, through infrastructure, Chinese state-owned companies take the opportunity to come. The private entities that are the suppliers and providers of this also take the opportunity to come and tag along. And you will realize that thereafter, some of the sizable countries who are beneficiaries of One Belt, One Road tend to then experience an explosion of Chinese companies growing and doing their business there. And then you see the products being uh, spread there. And um, this is, uh, okay, I, I'm going to say something that probably is taboo, uh, but it's a very similar form of commercial colonization. It's just that how we in this part of the world get used to Western culture, Western product was because someone brought it here first and then we consume and then end up the locals also enjoy those products. So it's a very similar example that we in Singapore, we, we in Singapore are enjoying Chinese food. In fact, we want authentic Chinese food, but because someone brought it here first and then we enjoy it and then we consume it. So that will be a natural progression for that. 
which is uh, why is it similar to Singapore? Because uh, Singapore also through our government a lot of strategic relationships, for example, in China, and that's how we have a lot of real estate giants who are also in China for that matter. So that is the first wave. And then the second wave would be where we recognize that the, the private entities then realize that, hey, there are, there are, there are opportunities overseas because uh, we are sizable now, we are skilled, we are, we are big, we have certain technology, but look, the Chinese market has, has proven certain headwinds. It's still, money is still there to be made, but we cannot be here only. And then that is where they venture out. But in those kind of natural venture, you realize that then Singapore or Southeast Asia become the first port of call. Number one, one main reason is because as a geopolitically, this region is generally friendlier towards Chinese. Uh, even just an example on food culture, you see how much they have read in this part of the world where you can find their food everywhere. Secondly, it's also the language. Um, Chinese predominantly speaks Mandarin, Putonghua. And in that context, uh, Singapore, bearing a high amount of population, speaks that language. And you will not find that uh, common in other countries. So it is really a, a combination of the language, the suitability, the diet, the weather, the political stability, the flow of funds. Um, the mix coming to this part of the world using Singapore as a hub going into Southeast Asia, a, a much more natural movement. So on the G to G5, one belt, one road, you will see that they will enter other countries like South Asia, Africa continents, uh, and maybe some parts of Eastern Europe. But then when it comes to business part front, you will see the movements more tend towards Southeast Asia where it's a lot more east. What are the opportunities presenting in this case? Um, firstly, currency. And that's what this whole conversation first initiated because renminbi can be used in renminbi just like how your crypto can only be used in your metaverse and also in the same context once you are outside china and all your other tools of doing business foreign other currencies like us dollars for take precedence when you buy and sell to other nations as well right so that's where singapore as a, as a payments hub become important and just have we have observed as well a few major chinese com payment companies are in singapore uh, and who also have successfully gotten license from mes as well so uh, opportunities that then thereafter presented for our audience here is how then do we partner and support these chinese companies to grow beyond the shores and then that becomes very important because the ecosystem that you have in china is totally different from this part of the world it's a whole new way of doing things uh, from the lifestyle to the culture to the language to the currency uh, to social media to even the way you consume your your daily life you know so that is where um fintech companies other companies uh, other sectors will then have the opportunity now this is super valuable right i think whatever you've just explained um very clearly laid down some of the points around the impact and opportunities that are present for businesses in Singapore, for businesses essentially outside China, right? Anywhere else, might not be just Singapore, but anywhere else. And this is really the impact of the reopening of China, right? Companies coming out, therefore we're seeing opportunities. And now we have to start thinking about how do we jump on that? How do we materialize the opportunities that presents today? So, so that has been great. Um, just one final question from me. What do you think then uh, that we should keep our eyes on now that China has reopened? Like, What do you think are the exciting things that we could keep our eyes on um, or learn a thing or two from China? 
I think from a consumer standpoint, I wouldn't call it fully open yet. Uh, case in point, I just came back from a family vacation in Bali. Uh, and I was very, very surprised um, that the tourists from India overwhelmed as compared to the number of Chinese tourists. So I think there's still a lot of uh, uncertainties that the domestic market is experiencing. So case in point would be seeing how a huge flow of family offices being set up in Singapore, uh, and uh, largely speaking from particularly from a, a China of a, a country that we are speaking of today, uh, and you are also seeing a limited number of tourists because most of the countries that uh, the Chinese citizens usually need visa to enter a lot of countries. So the fact that uh, we don't see them everywhere at this moment, all the countries that we are visiting at this moment, you don't see them. It's not because they don't want to come, but because they can't. So if you put that in the perspective, uh, I think there is still a lot of opportunities there where for the B2C, for the tourism sector to pick up. I think one thing for sure is that there will be new supply chain hubs being formed elsewhere in other parts of the world. And one example is Vietnam. Uh, some others maybe spoke of India taking over some of those things. But I think one thing that I do want to call out is that um, these Chinese companies, the whole supply chain that they has, the uh, value chain supply chain that's set up for most of the big uh, consumer products that we are used to, your electronics, even your raw, your semi-finished products, it is not easily duplicated and it's not easily replaced. And the sheer volume that they can cater for at this kind of speed uh, would not be easily duplicated. So even if you take some of this Tesla manufacturing back to the US and stuff like that, um, the kind of pace, the kind of dedication, the kind of thing that you're going to get uh, is not so simple. When you want to understand Chinese market, don't just look at what you see on the video. Just look and see what you, what you see on, on the news and the numbers. One reason why I would think that the tech development in China is better than what we have in this part of the world is because um, their work culture in the tech sector is, is insane. What we take what we would take probably two months to develop, they can do it in one month. And that kind of lightning speed, translate that to a mega supply chain from the time you have the raw material all the way to your finished product called a car, and I ship it out. That is not easily replaced uh, by setting up another plant somewhere else because it's the whole big chain that needs to come up with. And you can see China ambition very strongly in how they are consistent in trying to take over some of the infrastructure to be less dependent on the western part of the world. Recently, a very good example is the uh, commercial jet where they have just come out with the C919. Uh, and that really breaks the, the duopoly of Airbus and Boeing. Uh, and to some extent, when you see Embraer, which is a third company that's supposed to be sizable, getting smaller and smaller, you see the commercial jet coming up from China so quickly. Uh, that itself is a testimony of where China is heading to. This is definitely great insights on you know what might come and certainly what we should be focusing on and see how things develop, especially I think the supply chain point is it's really interesting and hopefully to the listeners as well, right? So great. Um, well, it's been great chatting with you, Ruben, and thank you for bringing us so many insights about China. I think all in all, um, China is reopening. And as you said, it's not fully reopened yet. Definitely way... Um, more growth to go, right? We've seen a lot of opportunities today, but it will grow and we'll see more in the future. So we'll stay tuned to that. Um, and also thank you to all listeners for tuning in. Um, this is the Payments Innovation Podcast. Till next time. Thanks for joining us here on Payments Innovation. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas about the show. 
Connect with Currency Cloud on Twitter or LinkedIn to find out more. And remember to subscribe via your favorite podcast player.